Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is knowing and the process of knowing, and our special guest is Esther Meek, who is from Geneva College, is that correct? Yes. And is a philosopher and has spent her life um, delving into helping people discover um, how they can know reality. Is that a fair summary of, of what you're about? Sure. And I had to figure it out first. You had to figure it out first, and now you're going to help us figure it out. We hope, hope so. That's right. And then I've got Tim Basslin here on my left who um, is in our media arts department. They are hosting the Media Arts Week here at Dow Seminary that Esther is the primary lecturer for. And then over here is Bill Hendricks, who is my cohort in crime at the Hendricks Center. He is executive director for uh, Christian Leadership. And so the four of us are going to engage in a discussion with Esther about coming to know. So my simple question is, how does someone like you get into detailed philosophy and the issue of knowing? How did you you start off with an interest in this area? Uh, Well, I had some odd questions when I was in, you know, middle school Mm -hmm. age, and, and, and in particular, growing up knowing uh, the Bible mm-hmm. and knowing what I was supposed to know about God, but then finding out that I wondered how I could know whether He existed. So it's like I knew um, all there was to know that I was supposed to believe, but the question was, how do I know? So, so you grew up in a Christian home. I did, uh-huh. yeah. And um, then I also wondered how I could be sure that there actually was a world outside my mind. Mm-hmm. And um, I was sure that the questions were weird and probably sin. I'm saying and you sound like the normal middle, <laughs> at yeah. middle school gal I knew yeah. when I was growing up. Okay, <laughs> so, okay. so it started from there? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I, it just seemed to me that I, I needed proof. I, I was and lacking proof in both of those. You know, I, I knew I was supposed to believe the Bible to tell mm-hmm. me about God, but that that was um, an odd thing. You know, that you would actually believe what a book told you about some reality. It seemed to me, and 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 you know, how could I be sure those those kinds of things? So, so um, I. It was later in high school that I learned that my questions were philosophical. I learned that from reading the work of Francis Schaeffer and, mm. and realized that uh, also that responses to those questions had shaped whole cultural epochs mm-hmm. and mm. shaped them across disciplines. And so my love of things interdisciplinary came at that point, too. I see. And, and so yeah. you did your training where as, as you learned, as you worked on philosophy? Yeah. I uh, When I figured out that you could study philosophy, mm-hmm. I transferred to Cedarville College and mm-hmm. studied with a philosopher whose reputation I had only heard of. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, that my life changed with that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I um, – from – Getting that it was a master's or a, a, a BA in interdisciplinary studies with a, a concentration in philosophy, and then I did the master's in humanities at Western Kentucky, mm-hmm. and then um, 
wanted to stay interdisciplinary, but you'd have to do two PhDs for that. So one, I thought if I could do that, I'd be doing good, mm -hmm. doing well. And then um, I was also interested in doing more theological work, too. So um, I had been being trained in the Reformational tradition, the mm -hmm. Vantillian tradition, and I, so I went to Westminster Seminary to get some more from the horse's mouth. Mm -hmm. So, so um, uh, other than some work I've also done at Covenant Seminary, that's kind of the wh where I did all the training that I did. But really, um, so the philosopher that I did my dissertation on, Michael Polanyi, mm -hmm. that is not somebody I read in any course. It actually was a young man at church that asked me if I'd read personal knowledge, and I was looking for a dissertation area that would be cross-disciplinary. Mm -hmm. And when I look, I read Polanyi's work, I, I thought it might hold some prospect for a dissertation, but then uh, when you look at the secondary literature, Polanyi was being connected with every discipline. So hmm. that was intriguing. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, Polanyi seems like he does connect to a lot of disciplines, and yet he seems like one of these shadow figures, at least I'm not a philosopher, but I had heard of him. Uh, in preparation for today, I did a little research. I didn't realize, for instance, that he had come to faith um, at one point, converted to Christianity. And I wondered how much his faith had yeah. affected his thinking and uh, vice versa. And uh, and is this somebody who we need to sort of pull out from the shadows and really go to school on? Yes. <laughs> well, um, so – uh, Wilfred McClay, who's a public intellectual, said to me that Polanyi was the greatest uh, underrated public intellectual of the 20th century. Hmm. Wow. And he influenced lots of people who are way more well-known than he is. And uh, But what he was was a premier scientist mm -hmm. at the beginning of the 20th century in, con in conversation with Einstein and that set. And um, then really left science, migrated eventually to philosophy, really to save science, um, because he felt that in the Western philosophical tradition there was no account that made sense of scientific discovery. So actually coming to know what you do not know. And he argued that if knowledge is, you know, a, exhaustively explicit information, no scientific discovery could ever happen. But it does. <laughs> well, actually, Therefore, we need a new epistemology. <laughs> I actually brought a couple quotes from scientists that perhaps open that up a little okay. bit. Uh, Werner von Braun, uh, the physicist, wrote, research is what I'm doing when I don't know what I'm doing. And Einstein himself said that uh, when I examine myself and my methods of thought, I come close to the conclusion that the gift of imagination has meant more to me than any talent for absorbing absolute knowledge. And uh, apparently the whole notion of uh, the theory of relativity came to him, hmm. he said, through music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so personal knowledge, which is Polanyi's Gifford lectures, really starts with Einstein hmm. and, and – uh, Oh, it, well, it starts with – it's called the lesson of the Copernican Revolution. And so he's really exploring the, the misperception that we have all been led to believe about how science works, where you collect data and then um, make a tentative hypothesis and test it, that sort of thing. And, and, and 
personal knowledge is really his sustained uh, um, uh, agenda to um, identify what he calls the tacit coefficient in all knowledge and to have us accredit it. That's his word. So accrediting that tacit coefficient. And really, he's, um, what he's saying is the scientific method is not how discovery works. So, so you need to be able to rely on tacit powers of integration and, and tacit hunches even of beauty, <laughs> you know, uh, to navigate toward what you do not yet know. So if someone were to say, I don't know anything about Polanyi, but I'd like to get started, what would you recommend yeah, for them? Good, to get, good. Yeah, that's good, good. Well, um, he, he's an elegant writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a scientist. And if it's somebody who, who loves science, personal knowledge is a, a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, I suggest that you could start with, a, there, there were later essays that he wrote that are st- kind of standalone pieces, mm-hmm. that you could read one of those and that would be a good entree mm-hmm. to Polanyi before you j- jumped into something longer. And, and so there's a small book of three lectures, it's called The Tacit Dimension. Mm-hmm. And um, Marjorie Green, who's a philosopher that worked with Polanyi, said that le- uh, lecture one, Tacit Knowing, mm-hmm. is a, sh- a good short form of personal knowledge. So I often have my students read that. Okay. Now let, let's transition a little bit in and discuss kind of the starting point for, for your concerns, part of which is the what you regard as the flaw in general Western approaches to knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, describe that for us and, uh, and if you can briefly do it, um, tell us where the problems are. Mm-hmm. Well, Polanyi's unique insight is that no knowledge can be wholly focal, mm-hmm. and it, it, no knowledge can be f- wholly explicit, articulated in statement form. And that, you know, if you take the no off and say it positively, mm-hmm. that's the tacit presumption that sets up not more than modern modernist epistemology, really all of the Western tradition, we just presume that if you know something, you say it in statements, Mm -hmm. right? And we rather snort at the idea that there could be something that would be called knowledge that was not articulated in statements. And nobody really examines that tacit presumption. So the idea that knowledge is basically information in one way or another or proposition in one way right. or another, and that's all that we're dealing with, is is too narrow a definition of what knowledge is about. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the ironic thing is, what exactly would a statement be? Let's say you – okay, is it something you write out on the board? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the door is open. Mm-hmm. Well. It's it's not even meaningful if you're not subsidiarily indwelling it. So here we are having this conversation, and we're rattling off these sentences, and they only are meaningful because we are tacitly, subsidiarily indwelling them to focus on their meaning. In other words, there's a larger context in which they're functioning, in which the sentence, the door is open, has some kind of Well, context would or? be part of it, okay. but the actual text would be subsidiary. Mm-hmm. So let me talk about this 
word subsidiary. Okay. Because right. it really is key to yes, getting Polonium. Exactly. And the word tacit is not key to getting them. Okay. Uh, people have said, okay, Polani, you know, says there's explicit knowledge, and then there's this leftover tacit residue. No, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, what you need to get is that there's a two-level structure to knowing, and um, he called the, the levels subsidiary and focal. So mm -hmm. you're always attending from and attending to simultaneously, and you never don't do both of those simultaneously. It's always from to. Right, so all of this is subsidiary. It's context, but there's other things. There's bodily clues. There's the authoritative guides of my past, mm -hmm. the po folks that have taught me language and all those kinds of things and, and are authoritatively guiding what I'm doing. So these right? are grids and lenses that I see through. So when I focus on something, I have some sense of what the pattern is, for lack of a better description I'm doing. You showed a, showed a slide in one of the it's not. I, I wouldn't say grids and lenses. Okay. I, would, I would just stick with subsidiaries Okay. because the point is that you subsidiarily rely on them and indwell on them. Grids and lenses are part of it, mm -hmm. but there's other things too, like you know the firings in your brain, right? And and also there's just more. There's just more. Well, I, the, the difference is between focal and subsidiary, and it's it's trying to bring those into focus. I'm thinking of a slide that you showed in one of your lectures that I. I will generally describe – it's going to ruin the illustration to describe it at the start, but I will – you look at it and it's a series of colors initially. And, and then what you recognize is there is a copperhead yeah. that's, that's, that's very much the same color as everything else yeah. around it. Yeah. So when you first look at it, you're not quite sure what you're looking at, but as you zero in – and maybe focalize might be the yeah. term yeah. that we're talking yeah. about – you recognize, oh, there's a copperhead in the yeah, midst of there. Yeah, you pick out the pattern. And so, so the pattern is what is the focal element, and yeah. the subsidiary is what is – all around it? Well, here's – and I, this is a great question, okay. and it's hard to learn to say this, but here's what I would say. Okay. Okay, in that process of moving to actually see, see the copperhead, mm -hmm. what you're looking at mm -hmm. first you might call particulars. Mm -hmm. And you don't see the pattern, mm -hmm. but then there, there's these these squiggles. <laughs> That's right. And and they start to be fraught with more meaning than you're able to put your finger on. In mm -hmm. my case, it was the Hershey kiss kiss mm -hmm. idea, you know, mm -hmm. and and. And at that point, the particulars start to be clues. Mm -hmm. But by the time you have the aha moment and you actually see the copperhead, mm -hmm. the particulars turned clues turned subsidiary. Right, right. So what you had been looking at, you turned shift, you shift to be looking from to see the pattern. Mm -hmm. Reading works the same way. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, my daughter had a Chinese copy of Harry Potter mm -hmm. that she got in China. Mm -hmm. And when she brought it home and laid it next to the English Harry Harry Potter, you know, the Chinese for me is, you know, beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's not fraught with the meaning of Quidditch and Hogwarts and <laughs> all those kinds of things, you know, whereas if you're reading text, you're attending from the book. If I took the book out from under your nose, mm -hmm. you'd stop reading, mm -hmm. right? But you don't see the page because you're attending from it to the meaning of the text. Okay, so uh, we're moving quickly here, so let me let me let me see if I can pull some of this together. And that is when when we're when we're in the process of knowing, and, and I'm going to continue to contrast with the way people are oftentimes used to thinking about knowing. They will think about I want to figure out what that picture is. Thinking about your slide, 
or I want to figure out what the meaning of that sentence is, thinking about reading a book or a paragraph or a story, however, whatever level you want to work at, that kind of thing. And I'm like this, I'm picturing myself as this, as this um, external, neutral observer of the stuff that's in front of me. That's kind of the Western model of how we think about knowledge. But what you're trying to get us to think about is, is that knowing is actually much more than that. Because knowing is about an interaction that takes place between whatever it is I'm looking at and myself. Hmm. And that's the covenant part of what you talk about and when you talk about covenantal epistemology. At least that's the way I'm reading it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. But, uh, and so there's this interactive thing in which you, if I, I'm going to say it this way, you are a part of the story that's happening in relationship to reality as opposed to being this detached outside of the of the game, if I can use another picture, outside of the relationship that's being established between what you are engaged with and yourself. Is that a decent summary of what's going on here? Is there yeah, more yeah there's happy? more of it. I guess yeah. I'd like to go back to the subsidiaries, okay. you know, because um, what Polanyi said was you've got to shift from looking, if you're doing epistemology, you've got to stop looking at the, the confirmed <laughs> Uh, facts you think you already have to do epistemology, and you have to shift to look at discovery. Mm -hmm. Because discovery puts into this trajectory the whole magic process of going from not yet knowing to knowing. Mm -hmm. How do you go from zero to 60? How do you come to know in the first place? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what, when you attend to that, you can start to see how the knowing process happens. And really what has to happen first is something like a struggle. Mm -hmm. So I, I did not – this is the first time I've ever done these talks that I did not use the magic eye mm -hmm. to start out. Mm. And I often carry those books with me mm -hmm. and pass around these magic eye 3D things and, and get people playing with them. Well, you can't not try to do those things. You know, so they just they just draw you in, mm -hmm. and you're then you you was like, what is this? You know, and then you, you read the directions, and you're supposed to, you know, pull, hold it up to your nose, and you're supposed to pull it away slowly. You want to get your focal point somehow beyond. I didn't even know I had a focal point. You know, yeah. <laughs> you have to get it beyond the surface features of the page and find a different way. Struggle to find a different way to relate to the surface features of the page, mm -hmm. and and so that struggle. Uh, and see, in chapter six then in my longing to know is called the OIC at moment because I do talk about those magic eyes. And so I, I unfold the whole thing in terms of what goes on in that process, how you go from looking at the surface features of the page to struggling to make sense of them in the way that the directions say, mm -hmm. uh, even if you can't, even though the directions sound crazy to you, you're still trying to do what they say. Mm -hmm. And then you, you, you kind of navigate your way to this logical shift, this leap, where you can switch the way you're looking at the surface features of the page so that you're able to look from them. Mm -hmm. So for example, switching back to reading, I taught all my daughters to read mm -hmm. and uh, used this phonetically based uh, approach that you know, sounded out the short letters and the consonants and, and then had very simple books that used them. And so I taught them all the things they were supposed to do about how to say these different sounds. And there came this point where I got one of the simplest little books and I handed it to them. And then I took a picture. 
Because what happened was they did dutifully the sounding out that they were supposed to do, and then they realized it made sense. And they went, <gasps> they were reading. Mm -hmm. So that shift took place in that moment. The, the OIC moment. That's right. That's and right. see, that not, not every trajectory of knowing has that, but I think enough of us have that experience that we understand that shift. Sometimes we talk about a figure ground shift, mm -hmm. right? So that kind of shift has to happen. And so to see that knowing moves like that toward mm -hmm. discovery, then you're able to see laid out the pieces that actually go into coming to know. And so knowing is related to the process of discovery, and discovery is kind of that – you talk about an aha moment where, where you see something, and I take it you see something that you hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. And so you go, aha. And you see it in a different light. way. And, and well, that's where I'm going to, is that is, and in seeing it in a different light, you actually – come to realize that now I see not just that, but even other things differently than I would have yeah. before I had the aha moment. Yeah. Is, that, yeah. is that what we're talking about? That's when it starts to get cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, so what I said – I'm sorry, go yeah. ahead. Well, then you have new questions. Right, exactly You right. have questions that you couldn't have had before. before. Exactly. And so then you have new focal point that right. you, can, you can focus on things, right? Yeah. And you begin, begin to focus on those things. And once that discovery happens, then there are new questions. Yeah, you're, and that's you're, how you're, you're moving to the future. It's like you're a flower that opens up, and you realize, oh, there's, there are more, more petals here than right. I realize. And that's how you know you've made contact with reality. Yeah. Or right. getting to know a spouse yeah. Like yeah. in a yeah. relationship. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the major metaphor that's used is the relational metaphor to talk about this because there, there are figures like pledge and, and dance yeah, and, yeah, right. and embrace. And but all you know, back to the copperhead, uh -huh. you see what happens is once you see the pattern of the copperhead and this was my experience, mm -hmm. you know, I'm here to testify mm -hmm. that when I finally saw the copperhead, everything changed. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was terrified. Mm -hmm. you know, he was at my feet. Mm -hmm. And my little daughters had pointed out to I mean, they didn't say, Mom, look at the copperhead. They mm -hmm. said, Mom, look. Mm -hmm. Right? And now the woods have new meaning. The, the whole and woods. And there are different questions to My be asked. parenting. <laughs> yeah. The possibilities are not necessarily very good. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So, yes, it just changed everything. It changed me. It changed them. It changed just the whole thing. So, yeah. Well, we're, so we're coming to our to our breaks. On the other side, we've got to talk about the other elements of this. But, but uh, I, I like the picture of the copperhead and realizing the copperhead is there and how that changes reality. Because when you do come across a snake as you're on a walk, <laughs> and he's looking at and you. he's looking at you and he's coiled. You have the picture. The the copperhead is coiled. That means something. So you're you're. And I didn't realize you had your children with you. That adds a whole other dimension. Oh, they to the found equation. the copperhead. They found. <laughs> it's the Worse. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty grim to me <laughs> in terms of what the situation was. So that was a different kind of aha moment yeah. that you're in the midst of. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Go ahead and give us the technical term that you use to describe Subsidiary this. focal integration. Yeah, that, and, yeah. and then the bigger term for the entire Covenant epistemology. Covenant epistemology. Covenant yeah. epistemology, yeah. yeah. So so um, I'm sure those are words that most people use every day oh, in their sure. everyday Oh, sure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've had, you know, wives of students tell me later, we have a whole new vocabulary in our home. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet it reduces down to CE real easily. <laughs> So, uh, so, but, but the picture of the covenant is the picture of this relationship you have in the process of knowing. And so there are a lot of pictures that you use to, to kind of get us there, to think about knowing in this kind of way. Um, one, I'll just give a, I'll let you just decide what you want to talk about here. I'll, I'm going to give two sets of, of terms. One is, comes very early on in your book called The Little Manual, and um, uh, love, notice, wonder, pilgrimage, rest, shalom. That kind of that sequence, which you introduced the book with, and then the other are, are ideas like pledge, uh, pledge on the one hand, and then uh, moving to the subsidiary focal integration, which I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time talking about, which takes us into the idea of indwelling, and then we've got the idea of encounter, transformational dance, and then eventually shalom. So we end up in the same place in both in both lists. We end up with shalom, but. Describe the process of of encountering knowledge and having knowledge impact. Yeah, yeah. Well, back to the Copperhead. Okay. Um, my experience and my Polani shaped experience. What Polani said about discovery is that you know you've made contact with reality when you have the sense of the possibility of indeterminate future manifestations, which I call IFMs. Mm -hmm. But um, as when I recognized the copperhead, all these copperhead possibilities <laughs> started cropping up. I take it right? many of them were not good. And, and they, I, the fact that I could not see them <laughs> yeah, you know, was, yeah, yeah. was a problem. So really, in that aha moment and this shift that uh, you know, so that I saw this pattern opened up vistas that I hadn't entertained before, and it was almost like reality, kind of came in and started asking me the questions. It wasn't about having new questions so much as my questions not being answered, but exploded. Mm -hmm. and, the, and I was in a new world. You went from world. a very pleasant walk yes, with your kids right, to right. a very threatening situation. Yes, yeah. Okay. So um, I started to have this sense that in the knower uh, seeking the known, the yet to be known, it was it was there was a reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So I was reaching out to reality, and reality more than shook my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. So I. Uh, uh, it was sticking its tongue out at you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, the Copperhead and I, actually had a staring contest, yeah. and I won. Yeah, okay. Well, that, and eventually he went away. That's actually frightening to contemplate. I know, I know, I know. You know, he looked at me, I looked at him, the I saw a bear. So. Uh -huh. Okay, so 
I, I, that's what I've started to work on to move into this thing I call covenant epistemology, which was not – that's my idea. Uh-huh. I, I don't want to – you know, blame that on Polanyi, except I do feel in his personal knowledge Mm -hmm. that I've taken the personal and gone in a different way Mm -hmm. that is consistent with, I will never leave behind subsidiary focal integration, but I've picked up on this reciprocal knower known thing Mm -hmm. and, and tried to argue in loving to know that that relationship should best be paradigmed by the interpersonal relationship mm-hmm. where uh, actually interpersonal because I make an overture and then what reality does in responding is is person-like too. It's like somebody's home and contacting Yeah, it, back. It's an interesting image because most people think of reality as the thing that's out there. Right, you know? that's they, right. They think of it as, as dead and it's not impersonal. very vibrant, exactly, impersonal. And so... So to think about reality as being this this breathing entity that responds to me, if I'm going to stay in metaphors here, um, that then a, a, into which I can enter into almost a relational give and take, That's which right. is the language that yeah. I think you're suggesting, um, really does make us think about how we interact with our environment that's very yep. sterile but yep. that's the way most people think about mm-hmm. it in a different kind of way that's amen amen okay. and john mcmurray is mm-hmm. the uh, philosopher of religion who uh kind of leads the way in arguing for this and mm-hmm. he says uh really what we do is we take a personal reality and depersonalize it to make data mm-hmm. and but what has happened in the modernist mindset is we've depersonalized reality mm-hmm. into two-dimensional ones and zeros, mm-hmm. right? And and that's part of giving us control over it. We can do anything we want with reality. And it, it demoralizes yes. the, yeah. the world. And, it, and think about, you know, all the environmental damage and right, right. all those kinds of things. We just presume we can do anything we want with it. Now, to step back and think about this theologically for a second, what, what I think you're saying is, is that the creation is a – because when we're talking about reality, we're obviously talking about how we function in the creation. And the creation is not amoral, and it's not depersonalized. There's there's presence involved yeah, in the creation, yeah. and so talk a little bit theologically about how all this fits yeah, in. Yeah, well, um, reality is God and God's stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we're kind of attached to our stuff, <laughs> and he's really attached to his stuff because all the stuff is his. Let there be. It is his word. So we confess both the the inscripturated word, but also the word that is general revelation. That's the word of the Lord, and and so. Every atom and every instant is his let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. It's promised. I mean, what reality is at bottom is love. Mm -hmm. Love is at the core of all things. It is his promissory bringing things to be by his I do. Mm -hmm. And and so um, I tried to argue that I wanted to to argue – 
and articulate wherein reality is person-like. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to say that reality kind of is God. That's kind of pantheistic. Right. But that actually depersonalizes everything. Mm-hmm. So the, the theologians that I work with, they argue that you could only think this way if you were a Christian. Um, and had a personal God. Mm-hmm. So the intriguing thing about Christianity is, I, I think the word with, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, God with us, for example, uh, true personhood, and, and really as I understand it, per, the idea of personhood really ca- developed as people were trying to articulate the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And, and so persons uh, are not intended to absorb each other. We're called to be God-like, not God-ish. Mm-hmm. Right, and so, so as as a healthy friendship would develop, you wouldn't absorb each other. That would be sick. Mm-hmm. You want a relationship to be healthy, such that your interpersonhood you, makes each other more the person that they you're are. You're respecting you each other and, and yeah. discovering each other simultaneously. Right, right. Yeah, and and so that is not a dynamic of control. It is a dynamic of relationality. And so what I tried to argue was that reality is person-like. And, um, because God has us there. Okay, and are you ready for this big long word that I haven't used yet this week? Okay. I argue that reality is metonymously personal. Do you know what a metonym is? Yes. Yeah, okay. but you're probably going to have to explain it. All right, so uh, there, there are figures of speech that the part stands for the whole. Right. That's actually synecdoche, mm-hmm. but metonym is one thing stands for another. So we talk about the the president by talking about the White House. Exactly. Or uh, in World War II, they called the female uh, soldiers skirts. Mm-hmm. Or we talk about our wheels. So mm-hmm. those that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. So if you say that reality is metonymously personal, means uh, it's a, a kind of truncated that that means you cut the limbs off and you got the trunk left. <laughs> that's right, what truncated right. means. So it's it's kind of a, a reduced to a, a reduced form of personness, <laughs> because, God, because because God has us there. If I can say it that way, well, it's His stuff. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, just as you went into somebody's apartment and you would respect their things and their design and their knickknacks, just because it belonged to them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I mean. Persons in the vicinity. A ring is a good. Example like a, a wedding ring or an engagement ring, you know, if a if a guy gives a girl an engagement ring mm-hmm. and she um, admires the ring more than the guy, mm. that's a problem. <laughs> um, however, if she concur. if she tosses the ring away, mm-hmm. that would not that's be good either. Yeah, that's right. So uh, gift. See, reality is gift becomes a, a, a way to say that reality is metonymously personal mm-hmm. because only persons give gifts mm-hmm. and a gift is fraught with person-likeness. It's imbued with this relationship of love that it is a, a passing between. Do you see what I'm saying? And you're, try, you're trying to engender with all this... I think this... covenant is metonymously personal, too. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, because it's a, it's a relationship between two people that's agreed upon. Uh, uh, I, what I'm sensing, in part, is going on here is, it, is really a desire to move us towards an, appre- an appreciation of the pursuit of knowledge in some ways, as oh. well as an engagement. Adventure, adventure. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. And, and I mean, it should be the most fun ever. Uh-huh. It should be. Be- because, because it opens you up to deepening 
your your understanding, your appreciation, your uh, your awareness. There are all kinds of things mm-hmm. that are impacted by the pursuit of knowledge in this kind of, of sense that we're talking about. So that it's not like it's not like sitting back and admiring a world book encyclopedia of facts. No. Okay. It's no. something very, very different than that. Yeah, think Star Trek here. Uh-huh. Start singing the, the you know, the theme. <laughs> da da da, you know. So, you know, why would anybody do that? The voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Just because it's there. Mm-hmm. You, you just long to know. So, so let's talk about indwelling for a second, uh, and, and this is probably the, in some ways the most – I find it the most fascinating part of what you're talking about. Uh, tell us about what indwelling means when we're thinking about the pursuit of knowledge. Okay. Polanyi's word – possibly got it from John 15. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a slippage in the way the term is used, mm-hmm. but one thing it means is – in that two-level structure of knowing, subsidiary focal, mm-hmm. uh, you you indwell all the subsidiaries that support the pattern. So when you learn to drive a car, actually you come to be subsidiarily indwelling the car, so your body extends to the edges of the car, and that's how you can dance down the highway, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's indwelling. All subsidiaries become like embodied by you. Mm-hmm. So your body, he, Polanyi would say, is the – it's amazing in that uh, it's the one thing that you know almost entirely subsidiarily. That's why it's so odd to go to the doctor, mm-hmm. because you're an object for He pokes and prods you and you go, oh, Right, you're yeah, plumbing. Yeah, you're yeah, plumbing. Yeah. Right, but you f- the way you feel your body to be your own is you indwell it subsidiarily. Hmm. Right, and you would indwell the car. What you know, if you're a basketball player, you indwell the basket. You know, you, mm-hmm. you indwell. You actually indwell the authoritative guides, whether it's the scripture or the playbook in football. That's right. Yeah. So all of that gets subsidiarily indwelled as you uh, seek the pattern. Okay. Now the hard part of this is. But that's. Can I tell yeah, you the ahead. other? Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. The other uh, uh, thing on the way to understanding. So here you are so sweetly listening deeply to me. <laughs> well, you're you in trying to piece together what I'm saying, you're also indwelling me. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to get inside the crazy things I'm doing with my hands <laughs> and thinking what could she possibly mean? Mm-hmm. You know, you're actually indwelling me. Mm-hmm. So if you're a scientific discoverer like that Barbara McClintock, the the Nobel Prize winning geneticist, she was trying to indwell the in the ear of corn mm-hmm. right you remember be the ball okay you I mean you actually want to be the golf ball mm-hmm. <laughs> you know in far and indwell what you're trying to understand too so that's a kind of anticipative indwelling okay you're getting at kind of where where my question is going it goes something like this I can get being subsidiary and being in a car being a driver I can get being the basketball player who's indwelling the court during the game those kinds of things. But you're also talking about indwelling ideas, mm-hmm. and so um, so th- I've got in the first set I've got s- physical things that I'm thinking about that that help me figure out how the space is working. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when I come to <laughs> when I when I come to I like ideas, <laughs> okay, when I come to ideas, that that that. That feels spaceless. I know it isn't, but that feels spaceless. So, how is indwelling ideas like or unlike 
being the driver of the car. I think we'd be better at ideas if we saw that it was like. Okay. And not unlike. Okay. So, and that's what I'm asking. So, yeah. how is it like yeah. as opposed to unlike? Well, that actually brings us back to uh, what's wrong with modernist Western epistemology. Because if you think that knowledge is information, you're just presuming it's focal, you're looking at it, you're not looking from it. Mm hmm. And we think that the po point of the classroom is impassive transfer of information – I'm sorry, passive transfer of information from one impersonal robot to another, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And But really what we all know needs to happen is something more indwelling-ish. At that, you know, what you want is not information focal, but information subsidiary. So if you're a chemist, you want to have indwelled the periodic table of elements. So not just the, the thing on the wall, but it's got to be that – and you, you used a word grid. That's a great example of a grid. Mm -hmm. You need to go at the world in terms of that periodic chart. Mm -hmm. And so – that's an idea mm -hmm. that you you know, and we talk about. Okay, I need to get inside that. Mm -hmm. That's indwelling. So you want to get inside. So ideas. I want to understand how that idea works, but it isn't just me. I also want to understand how I can be impacted by that idea. I mean, the the thing that I'm I'm kind of pushing here for is the idea of I'm not external to what it is that I'm examining. And if you were, you wouldn't get the idea. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. That's right. That, and you so have in to dwelling is, if I'm going to use another metaphor, you have to dive in. You do. Right. <laughs> you, you can't learn to swim yeah, standing right. on the side of the pool. So you have to dive into the idea. And you're un and when we talk about unpacking an idea, you which do is it from a, the inside. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So so and and so the change comes or the encounter comes, and uh, and the dance as well. Once I dive in and the idea grabs me, if I can say it that way, okay, and all of a sudden I realize I'm not looking at this from the outside. This idea has hold of me. Yeah. Okay. And now I'm in, to use your other another figure, your dance. Yeah. So explain explain the dance. Okay. If um, the knower and the yet to be known are persons in relationship, mm -hmm. that uh, that relationship is uh, best if it's uh, one of my overture, reality's response, my overture, reality's response, and it's a little dance-like. Mm -hmm. So it's asymmetrical gift and receipt of gift. And the learning overture that's taking response. place is as the interaction takes place, and I'm impacted in the midst of the interaction. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah. yeah. So I haven't told my bandit story. Okay, tell your bandit. <laughs> we, we want you to get all your cool stories out, so go for this. Well, there's oh, – okay. So bandit was this little cedar waxwing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I won't take time to tell the whole thing, but I, in, I inherited bandit from a student. Okay. And uh, at the point that I inherited bandit uh, – uh, he, I thought he was missing his entire wing. Well, he was apparently just missing the feathers off of it. He could not fly. Hmm. And uh, my rabbit had just died, and so Bandit moved into the rabbit cage. But um, I, you know, I was in awe of being this close to a wild bird. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, a week later I thought, well, my little bird can't fly like all the other little birds, you know, so what's wrong with my little bird? Mm -hmm. But, I, you know, I started to – I listened and attended and tended to try to take care of this this bird. And uh, he lived the summer with me, and um, 
I, I learned to pick him up with a stick, and uh, then uh, I, I wore a diaper, and uh, he sat on my shoulder, and he spent the summer on my shoulder. And, you know, when I... Uh, uh, gardened and bent over. He'd roll. He'd run up to the you know the high point on my back, and when I stood up, he would run back up. I learned that uh, uh, cedar waxwings do not eat seeds. They eat eighty percent fruit and twenty percent insects. Hmm. And you know you could waft him through the air on the stick, and he would just snap the bugs out of the air. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was really remarkable. Hmm. Well, and I also learned that cedar waxwings are group birds. They bathe together. They eat together. They are always in groups, and um, he loved nothing better than looking at my face. Hmm. You know, dogs are olfactory. Mm-hmm. Birds are visual. Mm-hmm. And they see very, very far. And I know this because I was loved by a bird. Mm-hmm. You see? Mm-hmm. I'm kind of saying I was changed. Mm-hmm. But here's the deal. He loved it when I put on my makeup. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he would sit right there. He loved pecking in my the powder. But he wanted to see my face. Mm. I was his group. Hmm. I was his group. Hmm. And it really uh, became a spiritual thing for me because I was in a grieving time. And here's this little broken bird sitting on my arm, gazing at my face. And I thought, you know what? I have a broken wing. Um, but nothing keeps me, if I just sit still, <laughs> mm-hmm. from seeing my Heavenly Father's face. Mm. You know? So it was like. I was re- I'd read Psalm 84 and the sparrow, you know, by the altar and all that things, and I'd, I'd look at Bandit and think, I'm that bird, mm, <laughs> you know? Mm. Well, so I'm all this to say I was changed even spiritually mm-hmm. by that bird because that bird saw me. And then at the end of the summer, he flew away. He, mm. he healed well enough that one day after 20 minutes on my shoulder on the deck, he flew mm. straight and true. And that was an animal, and you're saying the same thing could happen with a language or a concept or a person or yes. anything. Yes. And, yes. And the appreciation <laughs> that's coming out that is also being expressed for what's been learned for the nature of the experience, et cetera, it, 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 that's the, the essence of what learning and yeah. not only do you dive in, you have a great swim. That's right. Yeah. And it's transformative. Yeah. If yeah. You yeah. And, and that's if you key. don't, you don't learn. That's right. So the issue here, there's a there's an issue here about openness that's yes. that's very very significant. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. Because to be open, you've got to be willing to be reshaped. Because you don't know what's coming. Right. Right. You 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 have you have some sense of it. Mm-hmm. But I love to talk about surprising recognition mm-hmm. because you can be angling for something you can't only you can only half say what it is but then when it shows up you both recognize it but then you're also surprised by it mm-hmm. and you're and you're opened up at the same time for yeah. even more yeah and so the cy- and that's where the pledge stuff continues. comes back in too mm-hmm. you know you 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 if you pledge yourself to a partner mm-hmm. <laughs> that's come what may i mean you say <laughs> you know right. it's sickness and death and <laughs> that's right. and all those i things. didn't sign up for that right. that's yeah. right and yeah. then you have yeah. no idea what you're getting yourself into right you know but so I remember my aunt Lorraine saying to me about my uncle Dale, I could never have imagined what he would be like as a grandfather. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he she'd lived with him for fifty years, mm-hmm. and he was still surprising her. Mm-hmm. Do you see? Yeah, mm, that's person. That's cool. Well, uh, we're we're out of time. Amazingly, it's flown by to mm-hmm. use the metaphor of of the bird, and and we've learned a lot. We've 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 
done some swimming, and we just appreciate your taking the time to interact with us and, and have us think about knowledge in just kind of a different and fresh kind of way, and to show the value of thinking even philosophically about how we, we view and <laughs> learn and think. And yeah, <laughs> And it's clear that when you ask those questions as a middle schooler that, uh, that mm. uh, it was a great journey. So we thank you for being with us, mm. Esther, today. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you, Tim, and thank you, Bill, for being with us. And we're pleased to have you with us on the table. Hope you'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.